0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A farewell party is hosted by a killer, where all but one attendee knows the celebration will end in murder. This is the Anu Singh story. morning, Amy. Morning, Megan. One more week. I know. We've been planning our weekend together. I can't wait to see you guys. I'm so happy you're coming to visit. I have lots of fun stuff for us to do, too, and the kids. I hope it'll be too warm to go skiing because I'd much rather just go to the reptile farm. It's just been too warm to ski in general, so um, you're probably going to get your wish. Either way, we can't wait to see you in person and get to record in person and have just some fun together. Before I introduce today's case, Amy, I think you wanted to um, say a couple of things to the audience. Thanks, Megan. Sorry to hijack your episode here. But
1: yeah, so we received a lot of feedback about one of our recent episodes, Christina Curlis. We always love your feedback, particularly from medical professionals, listeners, especially when your comments point out something that we didn't think of, you know, because we always talk about this, Megan, we love learning new things. So we went through a lot of the information we received, and I would just like to clarify a few items that may not have been clear in the original episode. While it is true that in some cases, shaken baby syndrome is used to convict the innocent, it's important to recognize that abusive head trauma does occur. And I want to make that clear because abusive head trauma is the leading cause of traumatic death in children under two. And when we have cases of abusive head trauma, debates related to the mechanisms and causation of injury are often transferred to the courtroom. As we've talked about in previous episodes, what the court considers scientific or scientific testimony is often very different than what the medical community would view as scientific. So the legal challenges that surround the term of shaken baby syndrome can sometimes distract from the
0: more important questions of the safety of children and accountability. And I also want to thank the listeners uh, for sending in feedback and the uh, literature on this. We appreciate that you keep us learning. Um, That's one of the great benefits of having such a wonderful audience. Now, today's case was suggested by one of our Australian listeners, Isabel. And when I began the research, I was perplexed at this offender. I was perplexed at this crime. And I had to know more. I absolutely fell down a rabbit hole on this one. So very special thanks to Isabel for alerting us to this case. And we hope that you enjoy the episode. Now let me introduce you all to Anu Singh. Anu was born in India in 1972 to parents who were both physicians. Her family moved to Sydney, Australia just a year later where they settled down. Anu's father says she was a happy-go-lucky kid, but she also kind of clung to her mother's side. Anna did well in high school, and in 1991, she moved to Canberra to attend Australian National University, where she studied law and economics. Reportedly, though, she really struggled being away from home. She was very homesick and began obsessing about her weight, becoming concerningly thin, and she began using recreational drugs, which I know does happen with some college students, but I don't believe that. It was in her character, so I think she was struggling being away Anu was also described as being very extroverted, dominant, demanding, and had an intense need to be the center of attention in this time of her life. She withdrew from the university after only a year, and she went home, but she returned to her studies in 1992 when she was feeling better. That same year, Anu met and began a three-year relationship with Simon Walsh. She appeared to be doing better, too, for a while, and she graduated with her bachelor's degree in 1994. However, Anu had a brief affair with a man named Joe Chinkwe while she was still dating Simon, and this was a problem. She met Joe on a night out in Newcastle, South Wales. Joe was a 26-year-old engineer who had a very good job in New South Wales. He was described as a great guy, full of life, who people were just drawn to. He was a good person who could converse with anyone, and he was very close with his parents, and he seemed to have a lot of friends. I think the chemistry was instant, and Joe seemed to adore Anu right from the start and wanted to please her. Now, remember, Anu was currently in a relationship at that time with Simon Walsh, but she was also seeing Joe on the side. Now, eventually, Simon found out, and he ended their relationship. And reportedly, Anu took the breakup very hard, like very, very traumatizing to her, even though it was her actions that precipitated the breakup. But Anu continued dating Joe, even though it was long distance. Uh, She was still living in Canberra and he was in New South Wales. According to Joe's parents, they didn't really like Anu. They didn't care for her from the start. They said she seemed overbearing. And Joe reportedly began staying with her more and more frequently. Not so much because their relationship was growing, but because he kept saying that he was worried for Anu's health and that she, quote, needs me. I'll cite the sources obviously, in, but I also watched a documentary on this, and the parents said that they always had dinner together on Sunday night. I think around six o'clock, and so they said she would always call at like six fifteen, knowing that that was their time. And so they were like, "Why can't she just call after dinner?" And he would, yeah. you know, kind of drop things for her. So I think that was just kind of an example of what they meant by overbearing. So this was a huge red flag, the whole, you know, she needs me and and kind of to be with her to the chink But Joe really loved Anu, and eventually he moved in with her full time. And while the couple were reported to seem happy while they were out in public, only months after they moved in together, Anu's eating disorder from her college days returned and escalated. She became increasingly fixated on her weight and turned to bulimia and weight loss drugs to remain that thin. She complained to her parents at that time that she was also suffering from insomnia and that she was pacing for hours every night and obsessing over getting fat. Her words, she was so hysterical at times that her parents called mental health crisis counseling. And her father took her to see a psychiatrist, Amy, but Anna did not continue with any type of treatment. Now, I'm not exactly sure why, but I did read that she was afraid to take any of the prescribed medication that would cause her to gain weight. As you know, some of those medications have the side effects of weight gain. But that was just what I saw in one report. It's still not clear why she didn't follow through with some type of treatment. And like, you know, any kind of untreated illness, Anu's bulimia took a toll on her and Joe's relationship. She was often depressed. But I think it was especially hard on Joe when Anu became convinced that she was dying from a number of medical conditions that no doctor could find proof of. I'm going to talk about these illnesses in a little bit, just so you know. But along with Ipecac, which is a drug that forces vomiting, Anu was also experimenting with amphetamines to keep herself thin. One of the main side effects of amphetamines is psychosis, and reports later speculated that her obsession with dying and thinking she was physically ill may have been caused by those weight loss drugs. She also became pretty paranoid with Joe himself, telling her friends that she blamed Joe for her addiction to Ipecac, as he supposedly suggested it to her. And she believed Joe was poisoning her, and that her doctors were failing to correctly diagnose her on purpose. So I think we're seeing an escalation of her paranoia at this time as well. In September of 1997, Anu began telling her friends that she wanted to die by suicide and while she'd first thought of shooting herself she found that obtaining a lethal dose of heroin was much easier than trying to buy a gun now i'm not at all surprised that annie would end up coming to this decision for herself based on the mental state she was in and i shouldn't say not at all i'm just not that surprised based on what was going on she really had a perception just so you know about medical disorders that she had every different one. She came to believe that she was rotting from the inside out. And she reportedly really believed she was dying, even though no doctor could find any conditions. So while her part might not be surprising, the next part is definitely shocking. Anu went on to tell her friends that she and Joe had entered into a suicide pact and that she would host a goodbye party for them so all their friends could wish them Farewell before they both took lethal doses of heroin.
1: Megan, this seems to come out of left field all of a sudden. So you've mentioned that Anu talked about harming herself, but
0: Joe as well? Where's that come from? Yeah, that reportedly evolved as well. First, it was that she was angry with him. And then it became more of a situation where she was telling her friends that you know, Joe couldn't live without her. So they were doing this together. Did any of these friends try to get her help when they heard about this? I think it is a little bit bizarre that her friends all seem to take this in stride and no one kind of questioned their wishes. But I will tell you this. It did seem that Anu only had one really good friend and the other were kind of superficial. She wasn't good at bonding and making, you know, close friends. Some of this might be explainable, though, by looking at one of her good friends or the good friend of hers, her name was Madhavi Rao. Madhavi might be considered more of an admirer or kind of a hanger on to Anu, if you might put it, than a friend. But when Anu told her about the suicide plan, Madhavi actually helped Anu research the best ways to commit suicide and bought her a sedative called Rehypnol to administer before taking the heroin. Madavi also helped Anu set up the farewell dinner at Anu's house. So I don't know if, go ahead, I see you go, no, what? This is, this is very strange. Can you remind me how old these individuals are? Yeah, they're in law school now, so they're in their mid-20s. Okay. I think Madavi became a friend who believed Anu. I think she actually believed Anu had something wrong with her. I think Anu was able to convince her. So I think she was doing this to help Anu because Anu's like, I don't want to suffer. I have to end my life before things get too bad. So can you help me? She was assisting because she thought she was helping. Yes, I absolutely think so. So Madhavi helps set up the farewell dinner at Anu's house. And on October 20th, 1997, they were going to host this goodbye dinner party. However, Joe had no idea what was going on. Anu had never said anything about to him about her plan to take her own life. And there's no evidence whatsoever that Joe wanted to take his own life as well. Megan, but the friends who were coming, they
1: believed that Joe was in on this. Correct. It also seems like if the purpose of this dinner was a farewell dinner, then that would be the topic of conversation, maybe talking about some, you know,
0: fond memories I don't know. Right. Yeah, you would think. But there was no discussion whatsoever of the plan at this party. These guests and friends simply remained silent. And Amy, these were all, by the way, law students. How I'm sorry. How many were there? You know, I don't know exactly how many there were, but I know there were maybe there was five or six, but I'm not sure exactly. But it was multiple. There were several people here. Now, the thing is, also, they weren't friends with like they didn't know Joe. And to be honest, Amy, I don't think that they were close friends with Anu either. I think they were people who went to school with her and who she knew. And I think Madhavi was key in convincing people that they had to come to this dinner because it was so important to Anu.
1: I mean, not for nothing, Megan, but if somebody invited me to a farewell dinner. And it was somebody I wasn't really friends with. I'm not sure
0: I would be interested. No, uh, to answer your question, if I was invited to a dinner party like this, no, I would not go. I don't know if Madhavi was that convincing or if these people just want were curious. They did know Anu. So, you know, they weren't strangers. So, you know, maybe they wanted to actually say goodbye. Maybe they thought if this is real, OK, this is our last chance. It's really hard to know what was going on in all of their minds. So, I mean, we will talk a little bit later more about them. I, I assure you, this is not the last we're going to be discussing, but none of them also made any effort to talk her out of the plan, too, okay. which is interesting, right? You know, or offer like, hey, maybe we should call like a crisis hotline or, you know, get some type of mental health counseling or help her. And after the meal, while they were having dessert, Anu laced Joe's coffee with that rehypnol, which is, again, a heavy sedative, to incapacitate him and put him to sleep after the guests left. And it did just that. It knocked him out. And once asleep, Anu injected Joe with what she perceived to be a lethal dose of heroin. The party attendees knew that she was doing this or she kind of did it under the radar? They knew she was doing I don't know if they knew exactly that she was using rehypnol, but I mean, they, again, they knew that this was the farewell dinner and that they were going to die on this night. That's what they understood. So they assume that she was also doing that to her own drink. Well, I don't know if they knew the method. I'm saying the drink. They just knew that they were both going to die that evening. Okay. So she tried to inject the heroin, but the heroin was congealed in the syringe so it never actually went into Joe's bloodstream or at least a lot you know most of it didn't and he wound up waking up the next morning feeling hungover but you know there had been a party and they had been drinking but unaware that he had been drugged in any way so Anu decided what lesson do we take from this well she decided that she would throw another dinner party but this time she was determined to get it right this is crazy right I mean
1: I'm so confused. If she really wanted to harm this individual, why does she need the guise of a dinner party? If she lived with this person, why couldn't she just, I don't think she should be doing it anyway, but I'm saying if she had this plan, why Why a
0: dinner party? There's a couple of possibilities here. I think one is that Anu really wanted an audience. Um, she was the center of attention and she really wanted people to come to see her, to say goodbye to her, to put on a show maybe, Um, So I think a lot of people have suggested that it was that that need to be attended to and to be paid attention to. Um, However, there's another possibility, and that was that possibly this was her attempt to establish an alibi for the crime. Now, what do I mean by the alibi? Well, to establish the fact that, you know, she she and Joe were both depressed and, you know, she had told people about it and. You know, Joe was attending this party as well, so he must have known as well that this was going to happen. Both of these, I think, are possibilities, and maybe there's a possibility we don't know of because I, you know, couldn't determine exactly what Anu's point was. But you can decide at the end of the story, and our listeners should decide and share with us as well if they'd like. So four days later, on October 24th, 1997, She hosted another dinner party. I think different people came, uh, maybe one or two of the same, but other people came to this party, I know. And, you know, it was kind of the same situation with her plan, except at the end of this party, she injected Joe with two heroin doses. But Joe woke up on Saturday, although just barely. He was so sick, Amy, from the heroin, vomiting blood, shaking and dozing in and out of consciousness. Please tell me she called for help. Annie watched Joe suffer all weekend, literally almost 36 hours until Sunday when she finally picked up the phone. But she did not call Australian 911, which I believe is 000. Rather, she called the friend who had sold her the heroin. This friend demanded Anu call emergency services immediately. According to one interview I saw, this person told her, quote, if you call an ambulance now, you'll have a very angry boyfriend, but if you don't, you'll have a murder charge. And this apparently resonated because Anu did call the EMTs at this point, reporting that she needed an ambulance for a potential heroin overdose. But then she spent a long time before giving them her townhouse address. I know that we don't usually give, you know, much credence to these calls in terms of affects, but I want to read this for you. So this is Anu. Could I get an ambulance, please? I have a person potentially overdosed on heroin. The operator. Potentially overdosed? Well, he's not. He's vomiting everywhere. Blood stuff. He's vomiting blood? Right. Okay, what's the address? Anu says, is that a bad sign? Again, what's the address? Anu says, can you hang on? Please just tell me, is that a bad sign? The operator says, well, it's not good if he's vomiting blood. She goes on to say again, Anu, is he going to be OK? I don't know. I'll send an ambulance for them to check him out. Anu says, fair enough. So the operator asks, what's the address? She says, 30 Antill Street. Is that a flat or a house? Oh, it's a, it's a flat. And she sounds more hysterical during this. The operator asks, what number in Antil Street? Anu asks again, what's going to happen? The operator's just trying to get the flat number. What's the flat number? Then she says, Anu says, oh, shit, shit. The operator, listen to me. Anu, oh, hang on. What am I going to do? Operator, settle down, settle down. Okay, what am I going to do? Well, if you tell the address, tell me the address, I'll get the ambulance for you. So the operator at this point, I think, is kind of pleading with Anu, right? And she goes on to say again, will he be okay? The operator says, I don't know. We'll have to get an ambulance to you to... Assess him. What's the number? Anu says again. Oh shit! The operator again asking what the number is. Anu says it's um seventy nine. And so the operator says flat thirty seventy nine. Is that correct? And Anu says yeah. No, hang on. Right. Okay. So this is going on and on. How long did the call last? The call lasted a couple minutes. And then she's asking uh, the operator's asking what her name is, and she lies and she says that her name is Olivia. She just kept saying hang on. Oh shit. His heart's still beating. And then the operator finally says, good, right now, just settle down for God's sakes. And she tries to confirm the address again with Anu. So eventually they get to the address, but let me just tell you, and I didn't read you the whole transcript, I just wanted to read you part of it so you got it. It took 20 minutes for emergency services to arrive as opposed to three or four minutes because of Anu's stalling and incorrect information. So, you know, it was very direct questions, Is she just hysterical and and she can't concentrate? I don't know. Uh, I think that she was reluctant. I think she was still on the fence there. When EMTs did finally get to the house, they discovered Joe laying naked, unconscious in the living room, vomiting brown liquid. Anu was pacing the house, frantically crying and begging Joe not to leave her and telling first responders it wasn't supposed to happen this way. It was clear almost immediately that Joe was not gonna make it and he died an excruciating death on Sunday, October 26, that had really begun 36 hours before. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's unbelievable to think she watched him for that long. So sick, and she could have saved him. So Anna was brought to the police station for an interview. Detectives reported her as very nervous, restless, and at times hysterical. She told police about this so-called suicide pact, but when the police asked her why she was still alive, Well, Anu didn't have a real answer for that question. Did she admit to giving him the drug saying that he had wanted her to? Or did she say he did it on his own accord? She initially said that he overdosed himself, but then admitted it. But the initial story was that Joe had done it to himself. It seemed apparent pretty early on that this was, you know, no accident and he did not do this to himself. But the police also thought that Anu was hiding something she said that she was responsible. She eventually admitted to doing this and telling them about this again, suicide pact. But as the police further investigated, Madhavi Rao, remember that friend, was also implicated and charged with Joe Chinque's murder. Here's what happens. In October 1998, Madhavi and Anu have a joint trial, but a technicality ended the trial early. This was hard to find, but essentially what I read was that there was a key piece of evidence for which it was unclear if it was being used against Anu or Madavi. And so the judge said that they had to have separate trials. This was not going to work. It just wasn't in the interest
1: of fairness. It doesn't make sense why they would have tried them together anyway. It seems like if anything, the friend was an accessory of some sort, right? But she didn't actually
0: give the victim any of the drugs, did she? They were charging her with murder. Same charges as well. Okay. Even if she didn't give him the drugs, she is an accessory and she could be charged the same way.
1: I don't think it would be fair to give her the same charge as Anu.
0: Yeah, I'm going to tell you about these separate trials anyway. So hold on. Hold that thought. All right. The judge said they had to have separate trials. Both Madhavi and Anu elected to have a bench trial. So that means that just the the judge would hear the case. Do you think this was a good move, Amy? Yes, I think so, because it's such yeah. a heinous crime that I don't think there's any way that they would have been able to convince a whole jury unanimously. You tell me after what you find out what happens. Anu did not testify on her own behalf, but her mental health became the focal point of the trial, for sure, in Anu's trial.
1: She wasn't claiming insanity, was she?
0: Her defense was they were trying for diminished responsibility due to the severe depression. So the mental health issue was center stage. The prosecution was charging her with premeditated murder which her defense was prepared for. Remember, she researched ways. She purchased drugs. She planned these parties with Madavi. There's a whole lot of planning that went into this. Again, the defense said yes, but she was not in her right mind when she was doing this. She was under, you know, false impressions. And the judge accepted the defense's argument, agreeing that Anu was suffering from mental abnormalities, depression, an eating disorder, and a personality disorder. New South Wales penal code allows for a murder charge to be downgraded to manslaughter if a person can show that they suffer from a long-term psychological or mental health condition. And the judge accepted that Anu did. Mm -hmm. I would like to just throw in one mention here, though. One witness testified that Anu had previously stated that it wouldn't be hard to convince someone she was crazy if she needed to, though I don't know the context in which she made this statement, Mm. but certainly that didn't look so good for her. I'm sure there could have been a different situation in which she was applying that to. We really don't know. So I'm going to leave it at that. But those law students who attended the parties also testified at trial. And when asked why they didn't do anything, they didn't have very good answers. They said, like, we didn't know if she was really serious or it wasn't really our business to. This is their decision. But the police said that they found that these guests I saw in an interview were really not the emotional types at all, almost to an extreme Given the evidence on both sides, on April 23rd, 1999, Annie was found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years in prison with a non-parole period of four years. Wow. Four years. And because she had time served while she was waiting for her trial, that time served would be in a remand center or a jail. She was only going to prison for 18 months before she would be eligible for parole. Wow. About 18 months.
1: What did her friend get?
0: Okay, yeah, you're dying to know about Madavi, right? Madavi also opted for a bench trial, but Madavi's defense was completely successful because she was acquitted. According to the judge, there was no evidence to show that Rao was present, as you had asked, when Anu injected Joe, and there was reasonable doubt as to Madavi's involvement in the crime. hmm the Chinquays were shocked and outraged, both at Anu's seemingly light sentence and Matavi's full acquittal. They were especially upset in the light of the fact that there was clear evidence that Matavi was involved. There was. The police had established that Madhavi had researched with Anu how to inject someone with heroin. they had gone to the library and done this research. She had been the one who purchased the rehypnol. She was the person who organized both dinner parties where the participants believed that Joe and Anu were going to die afterwards. And I believe that she was also present for a little while after one of the dinner parties when Joe was sedated. So is is she the main organizer? Did she put the drugs in Joe's arm? No, but she was a participant. There wasn't that much doubt about the fact that she did have a role to play.
1: Did either one of them testify at the other one's trial? No. I wonder if they were offered some lessened charge or immunity of some sort to do so.
0: I don't believe they testified at each other's trials, but I'm not certain. But I will say that Anu took responsibility when she said that it wasn't Matt mm-hmm. fault. It was my fault. She took mm-hmm. primary responsibility in that way. OK, so, you know, what's the aftermath? Where's Anu now? Because remember, she only had to serve a couple years. How long did she actually serve? Four years. She was paroled. Yeah, she had good behavior. I am dying to know what she spent her time doing after she was released. I think you're going to find this real interesting. She earned her master's in criminology and finished her law degree in prison. She was working on her law degree at the university already. She went on to earn her PhD in 2012, in which she wrote her thesis on the pathways of female offenders in Australia. And she went on to self-publish a book on this topic. So
1: is she... A professor right now, or what is she doing? I don't know where she currently works.
0: She was not a, a professor, though. She had trouble mm-hmm. finding jobs. I believe she was, at some point, some type of researcher, but I don't know if she's a professor. She met her long-term boyfriend, Aaron Urbacher, in the Canberra jail where she was on trial as he was also facing legal troubles. So when she was you know, awaiting her trial and when she was on trial, you know, they were at a remand center. After the two finished their sentences, they moved to Sydney, Australia, together. Anu was living a fairly quiet life until a book came out by Helen Garner called Joe Chinque's Consolation, in which Garner openly sided with the Chinque family that Anu should have been found guilty of murder and not manslaughter. So she gave a couple of interviews and she said, quote, with hindsight, I can recognize what I was thinking and think How could you even have thought that? For instance, paranoid thoughts. The delusion I was under that Joe was in some way to blame for everything that was going wrong in my life. Anu openly apologized to Joe's parents in these interviews and said that she would very much like the opportunity to speak with them. But Joe's parents have absolutely refused publicly naming Anu as the devil and a monster who ruined their lives. Can't blame them for that. So
1: she has shown remorse.
0: You know... It's a good question. I did you know, I only saw some, some tidbits and yes, she says she was sorry, but it's again, it's qualified because she's saying, I'm, I am sorry, but here's what was happening in my life. And this Mm -hmm. is why, which is probably true as well. However, it's just, I think it's, we, we always look for an apology. That's just an apology. Yeah. I don't think there's any apology she could offer anyway that would satisfy the family.
1: Do we know while she was incarcerated, was she receiving therapy and was she on medication for her mental
0: health? I am going to assume so, but I don't know for certain that that's true. But I definitely think that she was. I almost could swear that I read something about that to this effect as well. All right, let's talk about Anu because she's a very complex offender. There's so many issues here. First of all, she suffered from bulimia, one of the symptoms of which is distorted self-image which is classified as a delusion in itself. So you might argue that she was delusional, right? To some extent, and maybe just by looking at that piece. She was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which presents in her fear of abandonment, thoughts of suicide, and I'd say intense mood swings that she had. And then she came to believe that Joe was the reason she was so sick, which was untrue. But I think that's how she justified taking his life. What does that sound like to you? The justification-
1: Yeah. Neutralization theory. Denial
0: of injury. Denial of responsibility.
1: Denial of victim because she believed it was justified in the sense that he was harming her.
0: So then, therefore, she could harm him. Exactly. Neutralizing or allowing her not to feel guilty because, you know, Joe was doing this to her. Do you have any other suggestions on how we could explain Anu's behavior? I think this one relies heavily on psychological explanations. She said from the start she was going to take her own life. Why do you think she didn't take her life? Could we look to a personality disorder or any type of, you know, suggestion for that as well?
1: I don't think she was ever planning on taking her own life. I think she just wanted attention.
0: It's possible. Uh, You know, I I think she wanted the attention. So that could be a symptom of borderline. It could be that she couldn't take her life because she had narcissism Mm -hmm. because other people, she's been diagnosed um, and I mean, not officially diagnosed, but I think that there's People of reports have said that she had traits of antisocial personality, narcissistic personality, borderline, and histrionic personality. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the perfect storm. So with, you know, a personality disorder or having even more than one personality disorder and then having bulimia, this distorted self-image, becoming delusional because of, I think it's also biological theory, because if the weight pills that she was taking we're also forcing her to become somewhat delusional or psychotic. That implicates you know, a biological cause here as yep. well. So I think it was almost like the, the perfect storm here. What about the people who watched, though, Amy? The people who watched at these parties? Might this be an example of the bystander effect? Well, the bystander effect, for anyone who doesn't know, the greater number of people who are involved or witness you know, some type of emergency, don't intervene to try to help the person.
1: There wasn't an immediate situation. They just heard this was going to be happening. So I think the bystander effect would apply more if they saw Joe in distress and didn't do anything.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's possible. But isn't Anu in distress if she's going to be taking her own life? Aren't they both in distress if they're, you know, going to be taking their lives? I don't know. It could be the bystander effect. Mm-hmm. Why does this happen anyway? Just really briefly about the bystander effect. it, You know, people might not want to get involved because they assume that someone else will act. And this is called a diffusion of responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe they also didn't take it seriously. That's
0: possible. It's possible that they thought Anu was, you know, kind of dramatic by nature. They didn't take it seriously. They're reading the social cues of others as well. So if, you know, no one else is taking it seriously, why should I? Right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the reason, it's well established that the fewer the number of people involved, the more likely someone will intervene. And Anu's goodbye party had a fair amount of guests. So I think it's possible that they were experiencing the bystander effect. Or were they dealing maybe with issues of dissociation or disconnection from the events because they weren't happening to them and because they didn't know Joe so well? The way that one of the officers said it, it seemed like these people just didn't care. Like they really just were emotionless, like they did not care. So All of these are possibilities that we're not going to know the answer to. But if one person I just think about this, if one person had spoken up, Joe might be here today. You know, Mm -hmm. it
1: seems like Annie was so determined that if one person spoke up and that led to someone investigating what was going on, I think she still would have found a way to get what she wanted.
0: She seemed very determined. There's no doubt about that. Now, Madavi's actions, how do you explain Madavi's actions? Well, I think she was a real people pleaser in terms of her devotion to Anu. She believed what Anu said, and I think she just ultimately wanted to please Anu. And then I just think um, at some point for Madavi, you know, Anu was obsessed with this. So maybe she just wanted to get it over with in some ways. It's hard to know how culpable she is. True. Because...
1: It's more understandable if she if she believed that Anu was in severe pain. She had a terminal illness and, you know, she wanted to help her maybe die peacefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's hard to know. I definitely think that her being acquitted of all charges, I think she should have been held
0: responsible for something. Oh, for sure. I think that Madhavi should have been held responsible, maybe not to the same extent as Anu. But look at Anu's sentence, Okay. So I would say you're right. Madhavi Rao was at least an accessory to murder, as you said, at the very least. Okay, and there's punishment for this crime. So why does she walk? The judge seemed light on Madhavi. Was this because she was a woman? Was this because there was light evidence? Was this because it's a different system? There's a you know, is there a component here that there was leniency because of it's very hard to tell in this case, but it is something to think about. Well, sometimes
1: gender can work against you or for you because there are some cases where women get sentenced more harshly because they violated gender roles. But there are other situations where women get
0: leniency because of gender roles, right? So it depends. And I think this is one where we saw leniency in uh, what we call the, we call it the chivalry of the Mm -hmm. system, unfortunately. What about Anu, Amy? She was convicted, but with diminished responsibility. So You looked shocked when I told you it was a sentence that she was out and served four years. What do you think about this? Is this an appropriate sentence for someone who premeditated a murder and watched her boyfriend slowly die for close to two days?
1: No, I, I am shocked. Usually I'm somebody that's in favor of lighter sentences. In this case, I think she should have served much longer. She was very young when she got out. She was able to, you know, able to live her whole life. And her victim died young. How I, I don't see any of the purposes of punishment met when we look at Anu's punishment. It, I don't think it's a deterrent, generally or specific, right? No. I don't think that there's any restitution for the family. None. I don't think that you could say this is retributive. No. Incapacitation. No, I don't think she was incapacitated long enough to keep the community safe. I would be worried that she's a threat. I would hope that she is medicated. And stabilized, but what if she was not medication compliant? Then what happens?
0: No, I think it's I think it's terrifying. I also I believe that she was suffering from mm-hmm. mental illness, and I believe she was delusional. I, I really do. But she was cognizant it's enough to know that it, you know what she was doing was wrong. Now, under some diminished response, you know she had diminished responsibility, and under some insanity pleas in the U.S., when you when you're talking about insanity, sometimes it's not so much that people can decipher right from wrong, but they're not able to conform their behavior. Mm -hmm. So would you argue that she's not able to conform her behavior? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think she was, she premeditated this very well. Um, She had many, I think the other part that really gets
1: to me is the fact that she had so many chances to do the right thing. 36 hours where she could have helped him and she didn't. I think that's the haunting part. Well, the whole thing
0: is problematic. But But I I agree with you. I I would feel very differently if she had done this, but then saw him suffering and went, oh, my, you know, what have I done? Called, Mm -hmm. you know, emergency services and gotten him help and, you know, just realized. But she had to sit there and watch this. I don't know how. And you know, that friend that I said that she called Mm -hmm. the friend actually called her. She said, you're a selfish bitch. Call the services like right now. So I think it was only because she was so harsh with her that she actually called. So no, I don't think this was a case that justice was served. I would have liked a lot longer of a sentence, and I'm not gonna put a number on it today because I don't really know what the number is, but I know this number feels wildly inappropriate to me. There was also a movie that I watched on this. It was the the same, Joe Chinque's Consolation. I believe they adapted it from the book, and it was a very mm-hmm. good movie if anyone is interested. I don't think this is a case where justice was served. I'm extremely bothered by it, and I really do... I hope that we don't see any I hope we don't see Anu again for any other reasons, you know, than let's say her her studies or her work. But I fear the same as you, Amy. It seems like she's been out of prison for quite some time and she has
1: not reoffended. So maybe she is, in fact, rehabilitated. But if I was Joe's family, I would be very upset about the sentence. I know. And I'm sorry to his family as
0: well, because he seems like a wonderful guy. All right. Well, that's everything we have for today's episode. Uh, Again, a big thank you to Isabel from Australia. We're very lucky to have listeners over there as well. And we appreciate that you bring us cases. Megan,
1: thank you for bringing this case. I really love hearing international cases because it's always interesting to hear about cases and other legal systems. So thank you.
0: All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, We'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash Crime. sources for today's episode include an episode of crimes that shook australia nzherald.co.nz the sydney morning herald the daily telegraph citing a chapter from libby jane charleston's book fatal females titled bright young things and the canberra times seeking the truth never gets old